Well, we are continuing a series here on apologetics and just kind of talking about kind of the reasons for our faith. And you can see from the notes that tonight I want to look at the subject of the ancient evidence for Jesus. Uh, it's a fascinating study. You know, it's uh, the end of February, March is next week, and we're going to start seeing um, some interesting articles in uh, Newsweek and U.S. News and World Report and Time Magazine, and we're going to see pictures of Jesus on there. We're going to see pictures of Paul on there, and you're going to get to read all kinds of stuff about what people think about Jesus and about the Gospels and about maybe the Gospel of Judas or maybe uh, the Gospel of Peter that uh, allegedly... Uh, may usurp some of the authority in the New Testament, according to critical scholars. Uh, and so you're going to see a lot of that stuff on the newsstand. And uh, I'll tell you, I actually love this time of year because um, I'll usually use those magazines as springboard opportunities to talk with people. Um, I'll say something like, hey, do you see what's on the cover of Newsweek this week? No, huh? Man, it's a picture of Jesus on there. No kidding. Yeah, you know, they're just talking about whether or not Jesus actually said the words that the New Testament says he said. You ever thought about that? No. You want to think about that? <laughs> you know, and you just, you just use it as a springboard just to begin talking to people. Here's a mainstream piece of uh, uh, journalism, uh, possibly, and, uh, and you get to use that now with people around you uh, and asking them, have you read the article? But before you ask them if they read the article... Uh, be sure you read the article. That way you can tell them that you did read the article and uh, you thought it was intriguing. So um, it'll be interesting to see what comes out. I'm sure more Gospel of Judas stuff is going to come out. As some of you know, the big uh, release that came out last year about the Gospel of Judas. If you don't know about that, um, then don't worry about it. We're not going to talk about that tonight. Uh, but, you know, when you look at the Gospels, uh, and, and you see that the Gospels make the claim that Jesus lived and that Jesus made some bold claims about who he is and, who, and his identity to be God, um, critics really struggle with that. In fact, so much so that you, in the late, uh, in the early 90s through the 90s, you had a group known as the Jesus Seminar who really isn't that strong of a move anymore. But for about 10 years, the Jesus Seminar was kind of a, an assimilation. It started with 200 scholars and ended with about 70 and then kind of petered out to less than 40. But they essentially had all these colored beads and they began voting on whether or not Jesus actually said certain of the things that were in the Gospels. And they came down and concluded that of all of the things that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John say that Jesus said, all the red letter stuff in your Bibles, they concluded that only 18% of it he definitely said. Uh, and they did it with pink beads and a black bead and a gray bead to say what he didn't say for sure. And it was interesting, the one thing that they all agreed on that Jesus definitely didn't say is every time you read in the Gospels where Jesus claims to be God, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, the Father and I are one. Uh, it's funny how they all unanimously said Jesus never really said those things. Uh, the critics don't want to believe that Jesus claimed to be God, and they want to date the Gospels as late as possible. In other words, they want to believe that the authors weren't really Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but there were some other authors that wrote them much later. Now, you tell me. I know I have the mic, but this is not a rhetorical question. You tell me, 
why would a critic want to know that the Gospels were written later as opposed to earlier in proximity to the life of Jesus? What would be the value of that for a critic? Okay, number one, that's excellent. It would not be a direct eyewitness experience, right? If you can date them late enough, then you've got secondary references and not primary references. Exactly. Uh, And also, they place greater value in eyewitness accounts or accounts that are closer to the proximity of the event. So, they want to date these as late as possible. So, um, to save you a seminary class, I'm just going to sum up some things for you and save you about 600 bucks here in about three or four minutes, okay? It's good stuff, but don't pay 600 bucks for it. I'll just go ahead and give you the Cliff Notes version tonight. In the 19th century, uh, a group of hyper-liberal critics uh, out of a school known as the Tübingen School of Theology in Germany, out of Tübingen, uh, Germany, sorry, I've got uh, stuff, they, uh, they dated all of the Gospels into the second century, okay? So we're talking Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They were dating all of these Gospels from about 110, 120, all the way to as late as 170 for the Gospel of John. But that quickly became overturned when a discovery was made, and there was the discovery of a fragment of the Gospel of John was found in Egypt. And they dated the fragment, and the fragment was dated to between 117 and 125 A.D. Now, what's significant about that is, number one, it overturned the critics' dating of John all the way to 170 A.D. because we've got a fragment, which is a copy, that's in Egypt, dating to 117 to 125. So, what would you immediately recognize? If a fragment was found, it's not an original copy, it was, a, it was original, it was a copy, and it's in Egypt, you would now have to say that the original was what? Was dated earlier. And so, almost unanimously, universally, New Testament scholars then said, okay, okay, all of the Gospels were written inside of the first century, before the second century. So then they dated John to roughly 90 to 95 A.D., which is today essentially where the majority of New Testament scholars date the Gospel of John. Uh, Without going into it, there's other reasons to maybe date John to about 65 A.D. We're not going to get into that. But it's important because now everything is accepted inside the first century, right? Well, if Jesus died at, let's say, 33 A.D., and everything is written by the end of the first century, well, that places a lot of uh, eyewitnesses still around during the writing of these documents, doesn't it? And that um, makes for very powerful evidence and testimony for the life of Jesus. John was the last gospel written. Everybody accepts that. Nobody denies that John was the last gospel written. So that means if John is written in 90 to 95, then that means Matthew, Mark, and Luke must have been written earlier than that. Now, the majority of you, just to let you know, is that Matthew and Luke were written around 75 to 80 A.D., and then Mark was written right around 70 A.D. Uh, that's a more recent critical view. I'm going to date them a little earlier, and I'm going to show you why that is, and then we're going to look at what the value is here, okay? Um, the value, just, to, just going to talk about it now, is the fact that this is history, and history is very, very important when it comes to faith and when it comes to religion. Um, you know, when I talk to people, for instance, who 
um, are Mormons. Uh, their ethics are great. Their values are great. Their mission in life to honor God is great, in the, according to their own faith. But I try to point out to them that the historical record of their writings matter. Because if you have somebody who claims to be a prophet of God, and he speaks something in the name of God, and it doesn't come to pass, what does Deuteronomy say? Deuteronomy 18 says, he's not a prophet of God. And back then, you pick up a stone. Now, we don't do that today. Alright, but you did that back then. See? And so I'll point out, wait a minute. Doctrine and covenants, your own sacred writings say that the Civil War in America would begin in South Carolina and that it would, it would expand and spread out to all the nations of the earth. Quote, well, as I check my American history books, I realize that the Civil War spread out to all of the nations of the earth? No. So something is wrong here. If a prophet speaks something in the name of the Lord, something that he claims will historically happen in space and time, and it does not come to pass, this person is not a prophet of the Lord. Or sometimes I'll talk to certain Muslims, and I'll, um, I validate and value their faith and their passion for their faith. And that's, that's a good thing, that they are seeking something more than themselves, beyond themselves. However, when it comes to the writings of the Quran, and I can read in, one, in their chapter, uh, in their book, that Jesus was never crucified. That's a pretty bold historical claim, isn't it? That Jesus was never crucified. Well, all I have to do now is go back to the historical record and say, well, what is the evidence? Is there historical evidence that Jesus, in fact, was crucified? And what you find out is, which we're going to look at in a little bit, is that there's not just the Christian records that Jesus was crucified, but we've got Jewish records and we've got Roman records that accept the fact of Jesus' crucifixion, that he died. So I've got early testimony to the death of Jesus, and I've got to compare that now to a religious text, the Quran, allegedly, or not allegedly, written in the 7th century A.D., so over 600 years later, and this text here, 600 years after the fact, is saying that these three independent early sources are all wrong. Now, any historian who looks at the evidence will say that the historical evidence far weighs in favor of the fact that Jesus, in fact, lived and was crucified and that the Quran's teaching that Jesus was never crucified is historically in error. Okay? Do you all see what I'm saying? History matters. And history oftentimes is how we can delineate what's true from what's false. All right? So, when you get to the, the claim that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, that He was God, that He died and raised from the dead, you have to ask yourself, well, what are the sources? What's the evidence here? Now, if you know Christ, one of the evidence that we will all use is the fact that we, we have a changed life. Right? That we, like Paul, argue for our testimony. That, that God has done something. He has changed our life through the living reality of Jesus Christ. And that is a valid and an important and an essential step when we share the gospel and talk about our faith with people. However, that is not simply where we leave it. We have to recognize that there's good historical reasons for us to believe 
in the Christian faith. Remember last week when we talked about why do I believe in the Christian worldview? One of the reasons that I gave was that it has historical validity. And that's what I want to talk about with you this, this evening is the historical validity of it. Now, look in your notes here and I want you to see something. The sources I give, number one, are Christian sources, okay? The, the, these, the Christian sources, i.e. the New Testament, claims that history matters. Open your Bibles for a second to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 1. If you have your Bible, look at Luke chapter 1. And I'm just going to show you a few texts here just to show you how important it is for these authors to root things in history and that it really does matter. Unfortunately, when you kind of live in a postmodern day today, what is the mantra today about truth? What do people say about truth today? What's that? It's relative. It doesn't really matter, right? Uh, what's true for you may not be true for me, but that's okay because we can agree to disagree and yet we can both be right. Oh, you guys hear that the echo? That's kind of cool. You can both be right. So it used to be that relativism just said, you know what? You can believe what you want to believe. I'll believe what I believe. We can agree to disagree. We can go our own way. Postmodernism, in a sense, deconstructs truth and will actually make the claim that you're right and I'm right. See? That George Washington can actually be both the President of the United States and never have been the President of the United States. And that's okay, because we both feel good about our own choice and how we determine that. So great, it doesn't matter what you believe about history as long as it feels right to you. You see, it's a complete deconstruction of truth where truth doesn't matter. Well, that is not the biblical position on truth. Look in chapter 1 at the very first couple verses here. Luke starts off his gospel and says this. He says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Now, when he says fulfilled, what's he referring to? Help me out here. What's that? Prophecy. These things in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, these things have been fulfilled. So, for instance, give me an example. What's one thing that he would be referring to? What's he implicitly referring to in the Old Testament? Any, any takers on that? Okay, one. The coming of the Messiah fulfilled, let's say, the um, prophecy that from the seed of a woman, remember? Genesis 3.15. From a woman, a seed would come forth, and what would that seed do? It would crush the head of the serpent. Remember that? Right after the fall of man. It is the first gospel message in your Old Testament. Genesis 3, verse 15. Incidentally, um, I always like to point out that for those of you who watched Mel Gibson's The Passion, if you remember the opening scene of the movie, remember? What happened? He was in the Garden of Gethsemane. What was on the ground? You had the snake slithering on the ground. And you remember what Jesus does? The opening scene? He crushes the head of the serpent with his heel. Now, I don't know who told Gibson about Genesis 3.15, but they're good. See, unfortunately, 99% of people who watched the movie were probably going, where is that in Matthew? It's not in Matthew. It's in Genesis 3.15. See, and it was the idea 
that a child would come forth from a woman someday and the job of that child would be to crush the head of the serpent. And see, what Luke says is this has been fulfilled in our midst. Uh, Or maybe he was thinking of that wonderful Christmas verse that's on all of our Christmas cards, Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a what? A child is born. A son is given. And he shall be called Mighty God, um, uh, Eternal Father, Wonderful Counselor, right? Prince of Peace. And you, and you realize, wow, this is the child that was born, the son that was given. Incidentally, when I say, out of Isaiah 9, 6, a son shall be given, a verse ought to immediately pop into your minds. Out of John, chapter 3, verse 16. There you go. For God so loved the world that He what? Gave His only Son. The fulfillment of Isaiah 9.6. You see? Or maybe he was thinking of Isaiah 53. That wonderful, brilliant chapter about the life of the suffering servant who would come. And he would be pierced through for our transgressions. And he would suffer for the sins of the many. Meaning the world. See, Isaiah 53, a beautiful picture of the suffering of Messiah who would come someday, but it doesn't leave it as death. Then it says, And he shall not be left in the grave, but he shall see his offspring forevermore. How will he see his offspring forevermore? Is he left decomposed in the grave? No. All the way back in Isaiah 53, you see that it is the promise that this suffering servant, this Messiah would come, he would be rejected, he would suffer, he'd be pierced through, he would take on the sins of the world upon himself, and then he would come back to life. Isn't that good? That's what Luke's talking about. We have taken um, time to look at this account of the things that have been fulfilled in our midst. And look what he says. Just as they were handed down to us by by those who from the first were what? Eyewitnesses. You think that matters to Luke? You bet it does. He says, listen, we've got eyewitnesses here and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you. So what does Luke say that he did? He says, man, look, I looked at all of the sources, all of the stuff that was going on, and I looked at it carefully, and then I have written an orderly account for you to let you know these things that have been fulfilled in our midst. So in the way he does that, I think I may have pointed this out to you before, I always get kind of a, uh, a kick whenever I see how Luke does this. Look in chapter 3. Next time somebody tells you that the New Testament writers... Uh, didn't care about history back then because 2,000 years ago they didn't think about history the way we do. Quote Luke chapter 3, beginning in the first verse. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. You think Luke cares about history? You think he cared about dating when these things happened? Who the high priest was? Who the prefect was? Who the governor was? You bet he does. So Luke, it matters to Luke. Now, go to your right. Go to Acts 28. 
26. I just want to show you another another one example here. Acts 26. Acts 26 is where Paul is standing before King Agrippa, making his case, his defense before King Agrippa, and he's trying to convince King Agrippa to become a Christian. And if you look at verse, all the way at the end, he says, in verse 25, he gets through sharing his case, and Festus interrupts Paul and says, your great learning is driving you mad, Paul. And Paul says in 25, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. What I'm saying is true and what? And reasonable or within the bounds of reason. This isn't something that we just made up. The king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this escapes his notice because it was not what? Done in a corner. Meaning what? All of this stuff is public. King Agrippa, you know all of these things. It doesn't escape your notice because the claims that we're making aren't some um, abstract, ethereal, kind of religious, higher plane knowledge that you've got to have some sort of special insight into. These are historical facts and claims that are in the city of Jerusalem. And all you've got to do, King Agrippa, is what? Go to the city and ask the people. You think history matters to Paul? You bet it does. Keep going to your right. Let me show you another one. 1 Corinthians 15. This is what you call, I know, preaching to the choir when most all of you here are already convinced, but that's okay. Uh, we still need to see what the world view of the New Testament is. And it is that history matters and that it mattered to these guys and that when we talk with people, um, we need to make the case that we're not telling them to believe in some abstract religious concept. We're talking to them about God intervening into history and that we have living witnesses at that time who laid their lives down to believe these things. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 to 8, we're not going to read it all, just to let you know, Paul is about to quote the earliest creed in your New Testament. This creed dates to between one to three years after the death of Jesus. Okay? And what he does is he lists a bunch of witnesses that Jesus, after he died, he comes back and he shows himself to them. And one of the groups was, look in verse 6. After that, he appeared to how many? To more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. Most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Why would Paul say in this creed, why would he tell the Corinthian people that most of these people are still living? What would be the purpose of saying that? Go ask them. Hey, if you've got any doubts, they're still kicking, man. You go find them and you go ask them. And he appeared to all of them at the same time. See, which means you should get pretty much the same account. You shouldn't get a bunch of different accounts here because they all saw him. See? Isn't that good of Jesus, by the way, to come back and show himself to us in history to a whole bunch of people so that we can have some eyewitnesses because he knew the weaknesses of our faith? And he comes back to 500 at the same time. I'll show you a couple more of these. I think these are great. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Keep going to your right. Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians. First, or, uh, First Thess, Second Thess, First Timothy. 
Look what Timothy says here, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. He says, listen, we're a people of the truth. Don't listen to these people who are devoting themselves to myths, to stories, to religious propaganda. We are about the truth, not about myths and endless genealogies that we can't check up on. You see? Well, there's several other passages that we could go to. I just want you guys to see that the New Testament, all the major writers, Paul, Jesus, um, Peter, John, all of these guys recognize that uh, we have seen Him, we have heard Him, we have touched Him, and we write to you these things which we know. Okay? So... History, once again, matters to these guys. So, we look at this now in the 21st century, and we go, okay, well, let's look at this, the Gospels. Well, when were the Gospels written? That's an important question. Well, we know they were inside the first century. Well, let me just make a couple points real quick so we can move through the Gospels quickly. One of the ways you can date the Gospels, okay, is who wrote the book of Acts? Luke wrote Acts, which means he also wrote what? Luke. So, Luke was written first, the Gospel of Luke, and then the book of Acts. So, if you can date the book of Acts, what does that say about the Gospel of Luke? It predates that. Well, not everyone. Most scholars believe that Mark was the first Gospel written. So, that means that Mark would what? Be earlier than Luke. Okay? So, how can we date Luke? Well, let me tell you what historically... The most common uh, dating of Luke was, most people dated Luke to about 63 to 64 A.D., okay? And here's the reason why. Number one, when you read Luke, or when you read the book of Acts, guess what's still standing at the end of the book that was destroyed in 70 A.D.? The temple. If he was writing after the destruction of the temple... Why would, he, why would he not mention anything, since this is a history of the early church, why would he not mention anything about the destruction of Jerusalem or the destruction of, of the temple? In fact, when you read the language of the book of Acts, you don't even see any kind of war motif at all. If anything, Jerusalem is intact. In Acts 15, you even have the council at Jerusalem meet together to debate whether or not circumcision is something that you should force Gentile believers to do. So, you don't see the mentioning of anything about the destruction of Jerusalem or the destruction of the temple. I think that's significant. Um, Also, you do have a martyrdom mentioned in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6. Do you remember who's martyred in Acts 6? Stephen is is the martyr that's mentioned. Now, that's good that Stephen was mentioned as, as the first martyr. Well, we know that Peter and Paul both were martyred latest by 64 A.D. Latest. Most think they were probably martyred around maybe 63, possibly 62 A.D. Let me ask you a question. If you're going to mention the martyrdom of Stephen in the book of Acts, because it's a history of the early church, well, if Acts was written after 70 A.D., don't you think you would have mentioned about the death of Paul and the death of Peter? The two pillars of the Jewish and the Gentile uh, churches? Yet they're not mentioned. In fact, 
Worse than that, at the end of the book, they're still alive. See? So, when you look at the internal evidence within the book, you see that there's every reason to believe that the, the book of Acts was written before the destruction of Jerusalem, before the war on Jerusalem began, which is 66 AD, and before Peter and Paul were executed, which is probably around 63 or 64 AD. So Acts is probably written around 62 to 63 AD. Well, that means that Luke was written when? Just before that, maybe by 60 AD, maybe 61 AD, which means Mark was most likely written in the 50s, you see? And we also know, just as a side note, this is free tonight. We also know that Papias, an early father of the church, said that the first written gospel was an Aramaic copy of the gospel of Matthew. So that means that when Mark was the first one to write in Greek, Mark probably had access to an Aramaic copy of Matthew's gospel and used that as a grid in which he wrote his. And the reason we say that is because if you look at Mark and you look at Matthew, you see almost the entirety of Mark's gospel and the way he, it flows in Matthew. So Mark apparently must have had some sort of a source to do that. Uh, there's another view that says Matthew used Mark. One or the other. It just depends on how you want to view that. But either way, you have Mark written in the 50s. Now, that's significant, guys, because if Jesus died in 33, then that means that you've got a full gospel written within 20 years of the death of Jesus. Now, a lot of people say this. Why did they wait 20 years? You ever wondered that? Why didn't they immediately write right away? Well, it's because what do you think that the apostles and the early church expected after the death and resurrection of Jesus? What did they expect? His return. That's right. They expected His return. So, why do I need to write a bunch of Gospels of Jesus in His life if I'm waiting His return and immediately? You see? Because Jesus even told them that He would come back, that He would return. Well, after 20 years, 25 years, He hasn't come back. These guys are getting a little long on the tooth, losing some hair, and they realize, we better write this stuff down. We've got a whole other generation behind us that needs to know the life of Christ, the right life of our Lord. See? So then they write the Gospels in order to have a true account passed down to the next generation. Does that make sense? So, that's our Gospels. That's the book of Acts. By the way, we're not going to go through all of these. I just want to go through nine of the letters of Paul with you right now. Some of you got that as a joke. The others are going, you're kidding. No, really, we're going to be here till 9. You guys, we'll make it. Now, Paul's letters are written from 48 A.D., roughly, to about 62, 63 A.D., right, just before he died. Second Timothy was the last letter that he wrote. That's a whole nother set of early documents demonstrating the life of Jesus. Okay, so you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You've got um, all of the letters of Paul. You've got the letters of Peter, the letter of James, who was who, by the way? The brother of our Lord, right? Uh, you've got Jude, who was who? The brother of our Lord. Jude also was a brother of Jesus. So you've got multiple independent witnesses all writing an account of Jesus. Now, a lot of times what you'll hear people say is, wait a minute, that doesn't count because they're biased. They were followers of Jesus. But that's surely an absurd objection to say that you can't write 
an objective history about somebody because you're, you're biased. Could you imagine if you threw out every Jewish history about the Holocaust? It's the Jewish histories of the Holocaust that are the most reliable. Those are the ones that we go to to read and to understand what happened in those concentration camps, aren't they? We don't read from the enemies of the Jews about what happened to the Jews in the Holocaust. We read the first-hand accounts. We read from the Jewish people themselves. So it's an absurd argument to say that just because these guys were followers of Jesus or biased, that therefore they're not reliable. If you applied that same criteria to any other aspect of history, you would deconstruct all of history and you wouldn't trust hardly anything. Who would you want to know about somebody from? A person's friends or a person's enemies? A person's friends. Somebody that lived with them. Somebody that walked with them. See? Not somebody that hated them. That's not where you get it. Now, if they also wrote something and they happen to align with those who knew him, that's even stronger, isn't it? Because now you've got multiple witnesses that don't even like each other. Let me show you what I mean. Turn your, to the second page. This is a non-Christian source. He's a Roman historian. His name is Tacitus. And he's writing about 115 AD. There was a wicked emperor. His name is Nero. Nero hated the Christians. And for whatever reason, Nero decided that he was going to burn Rome. And so he has Rome burned. And it was a tragic fire. Nero decides to blame the Christians for the burning of Rome so that he could justify the murder and the killing of, of Christians. And Tacitus is writing about this account. Look what he says. This is fascinating. 115 AD, and this is what he writes. He says, Consequently, to get rid of the report, in other words, that he did it, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. That's pretty good, isn't it? There's the historical validation from a non-Christian source of somebody who even was antagonistic to Christianity, and he names the death of Jesus and who it was that sentenced him. And a most mischievous superstition was thus checked for the moment, again broke out, not only in Judea, by the way, what is that mischievous superstition that was checked for a while, but then broke out again? What's that? Christianity, what, but what specific historical event? The resurrection. That's right. They were preaching the resurrection in Rome. All of a sudden, it was put in check for a while because of the persecutions. But then, it says, it broke out again, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil. So is Tacitus a real sympathetic guy to Christians? Not at all. But even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Love that. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty. Then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city. In other words, Christians were taken up, and they weren't convicted for setting Rome on fire, but as of hatred against mankind. Now, you explain that to me. 
why would the Christians at that time be accused as being haters of mankind? What did they believe that gave them the appearance of being haters of mankind? They believed that the world was lost and that the world was depraved and that the world was in deep need of a Savior and that apart from Christ, there was no hope. You see? Mockery of every sort was added to their death, covered with the skins of beasts. They were torn by dogs and perished, were nailed to crosses or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. And that was one of the things Nero would do. He would take the skins of animals, wrap Christians up in them, put them on posts, and he would light his garden parties at night to the burning flesh of Christians. Nice guy. But this is the writing of Tacitus in 115. Establishes a lot of things that you see in the New Testament, doesn't it? About Jesus' life, who he claimed to be, his death, the followers of Jesus, this superstition that they were proclaiming. Pliny the Younger, written about the same time to Emperor Hadrian, he writes this, They, the Christians, were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light, when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God, and bound themselves by solemn oath not to any wicked deeds, but never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their word, nor deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up. Don't you wish the New York Times could write this about us today in describing what a Christian is? After which it was their custom to separate and then reassemble to partake of food, but food of an ordinary and innocent kind. You know what that means? That means there was a superstition running around that Christians were being charged of cannibalism. Whenever they would talk about the body and blood of Jesus that they would eat, and Pliny says, no, 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 I've looked at this stuff. This is of an ordinary and innocent kind. They're not running around drinking cups of blood and eating flesh. See? Isn't that a good testimony there? That they're worshiping Christ as to a God, singing hymns to Him? The Jewish sources here. You got what's known as the Talmud, which is the Jewish writings, which extended from about 70 to 200 A.D. Here are the Jews. Did the Jews, were they a fan of Jesus? No. They were part of the ones that had Him crucified. Well, look what they say in their own writings. On the eve of the Passover, Yeshu was hanged. For forty days before the execution took place, a herald went forth and cried, He is going forth to be stoned because he has practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. Anyone who can say anything in his favor, let him come forward and plead on his behalf. But since nothing was brought forward in his favor, he was hanged on the eve of Passover. There's your Roman testimony. We just had, I mean, your Jewish testimony. You had the Roman testimony. Let me show you one more. This is probably the most popular and the most powerful of all the testimonies. Now, let me just make a point here. The traditional one probably had what's called interpolations, which means Christians in the early centuries were so zealous for their cause that they actually added some things into Josephus's, the ancient Jewish historian's statements. And so scholars have had to go through it and decide what's original and what was probably added by Christians. Okay? But, in 1972, Shlomo Pines found a copy of this same account by Josephus, and it was written in Arabic. 
and it didn't have any of the Christian additions into the text. So this is most likely the original of what Josephus wrote, and this is what it says. Remember, Josephus was not a supporter of Christians at all. He wrote, At this time, there was a wise man who was called Jesus, and his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. So who's referring to? Jews and Gentiles. He recognizes the spread of this to the Gentiles. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. And those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. What does that mean? They didn't abandon his discipleship. So they did what? They suffered for their faith. They reported that he, had, that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders. What a great testimony from an early Jewish source inside of the first century that you see who they recognized Jesus to be. So you all with me? You've got the Christian sources. You've got the Gospels. You've got Paul's writings. You've got Peter. You've got James. You've got Jude. Christian sources. That should be enough. But then we've got Roman sources. We've got Tacitus. We've got Pliny early. And then we've got Jewish sources. We've got the Talmud. And we've got Josephus. All of them independently testifying to the life and the death and the apparent resurrection of Jesus. So, history here absolutely matters that we were able to anchor this thing down and recognize that Jesus, um, in fact, made these claims and people believed him. Now, our last text, and we'll be done tonight, look at 1 Corinthians 15 again. Go back to your left. Now, I said to you earlier that this text is the earliest text in your New Testament. And what I mean by that is this. In 1 Corinthians 15, look at verse 3. This is how Paul introduces it. He, he says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Now that's a rabbinical phrase, meaning that Paul is about to quote something. What I received, I'm about to pass on to you as of first importance. And this, these next five verses here, we know are an early creed that was originally written in the language of Aramaic, which, by the way, was the language that who spoke? Jesus and the early community of followers spoke Aramaic. This is an ancient Aramaic creed that eventually was translated by Paul into Greek because Corinthians is what? They're Greek. They speak Greek. They don't speak Aramaic. And so what Paul is about to do here is he's about to take this early creed, this early hymn, and he's going to translate it into Greek. And they're going to, and they're going to use this creed or hymn. And this is what they sing. And this is what they recite every time on the first day of the week in their home churches. And this is what it was. Now, remember, this is between one to three years after the death of Jesus that this hymn or this creed was established, okay? So what that means is the argument that used to be made that the belief that Jesus was God and rose from the dead, that that was some later accretion or later development in the history of the church, 
that's completely contradicted by this because there wouldn't be enough time for that to happen because here you've got an early, early testimony of who Jesus was. And look what they say. That Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. Some of your Bibles may actually have the word Cephas. Do you, how many of you have Cephas in there? That means they left the name of Peter in its original Aramaic form. That's the Aramaic name for Peter. That's one of the reasons also that you see today that this is an Aramaic, because they leave it in, in its Aramaic form. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Now, most scholars believe that Paul added that into this creed because Paul believed that he was what? That he was an apostle. And he defended his apostolic authority. So he mentions James and Peter in this early creed. Now, you know what's interesting? I said that was your last flip. It's not. Go to your right to Galatians. This is your last flip. I want you to see something. Here's the question. When would Paul have possibly received that creed? Okay? Well, let's see. Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 17. We're actually going to be looking at this in the morning with the men's study. Paul is talking about his conversion. After he comes to know Christ, look what he says. Verse 17, Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. So as soon as Paul gets saved, does he run immediately to the apostles and say, tell me everything you know? He doesn't. He goes to Arabia and goes away from them for a period of time. How long? Well, verse 18. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with who? Peter. And stayed with him. 15 days. And I will assure you, they didn't just talk about the weather for 15 days. Peter is given Paul the inside scoop. But there's somebody else mentioned. I saw none of the other apostles except who? James. Interesting. Peter and James are the only two that Paul meets with here. Who do you think gave him the creed of that he was buried or died for our sins, that he was buried that he rose from the dead, that he appeared to Peter and later to James. Peter and James. You see? Early, early on, those guys formulated that, that, that creed to be passed around among all the believers. So do you see how early this is? I mean, we're talking right out of the chute. And this is what's even more amazing, is that all of this happened in Jerusalem, the same city that Jesus was crucified in. It would have been absolutely a piece of cake for authorities to come in here and get witnesses to say that it was all bogus, it was all a lie to produce the body of Jesus. It would have been very easy for them to show that this thing didn't happen at all. It would be like today, somebody claiming to have risen from the dead in Flower Mound. How long do you think that would fly if it didn't really happen? 
it would be dismissed, they would be seen as a nut, and no one would buy it. But what if somebody really was raised from the dead, and people began following them? Do you think persecuting them would stop their faith? Probably not. See, because they saw something with their own eyes. You see the power of that in their own city? And here it is. It's not just an old city, like just some city. This is Jerusalem, the heart of Judaism, the very place where if there was ever a city that Christianity should have been seen as blasphemous and been utterly rejected, it would have been Jerusalem. And yet this is the city that Christianity literally exploded out of. And by the grace of God, we have multiple independent early sources that show the credibility of that. Isn't that good? So that's the historical validity of our New Testament, of the life of Jesus. And so, we believe in Jesus because He's changed our lives. We also believe in Christ because He has entered into history and He has made Himself known and we have access to those, to those things. So that's, that's, a, that's a good thing. Next week, we're going to take it a step further and we're going to look now at the historical um, veracity of the resurrection. Uh, Easter is coming up around this time. I always love to talk on the resurrection. And uh, next week, we're going to look at what essentially is the, the case for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So come next week. Uh, bring some friends along. It's going to be uh, just a great, encouraging time to see what exactly are the reasons that historically we believe in the resurrection of Christ.